Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. They hire me, some 19-year-old kid off the street, doesn't even want to be a teacher. <laughs> they don't take it seriously. I'm not going to take it seriously. So I literally started just experimenting. And then I meet this guy who I used to hang out with who was basically a drug addict and a criminal. And now he's this super wealthy, successful internet marketing guy. If you believe you are or you can do or be something, you, you can do it, right? It's that simple. But the one thing that remains unshakable is whenever I have a moment of clarity, I realize what I'm really here to do. I realize where I came from, who I really am, and what the most important thing is for me. And that is to share these stories and to put them out there so that people can be helped by it. What's up, guys? You are listening to The Human Experience, and wow, I just another home run episode here for you guys our guest casper vandermulen he is actually a friend of mine that i spent some time with in la and learning from him i I really wanted to bring him on the show you guys are going to love this conversation there's a lot of practical usable tools we even get into a breathing exercise that casper walks me through which you can apply and use in your everyday life Usually we cut out the episode for members only. We're not doing that with this episode because it's that good. So enjoy this one. Thank you so much for listening. The human experience is in session. My guest for today is Mr. Casper Vandermulen. Casper, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Thank you, man. I feel very welcome and I'm very happy that you'll have me. Did I say your last name right? Because I've known you for at least a year, but I don't know how to say your last name. Is it Mulan? You did. That, that's, okay. that's as good as any American has ever said it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Casper, I'm really glad to have you here, man. I loved MindLift and I, I love your story. Why don't you take us through that? Tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are today, and then, and then we'll go back to what made you into who you are today. Yeah, well, that's a great way to phrase the question, because the way that my life is now, it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of adventure, and there's uh, decent amounts of success, and a lot of people see it, and then they're like, that's amazing, and I want that. And most people, if they don't look beyond that, they don't get to see what the backstory is. Uh, so right now, it's a lot of fun. I started, let's say, two and a half years ago when I had this wild idea of writing a book in 30 days based on the challenges I'd been through. And I was on a hunt for the most disempowering and limiting beliefs that I had about myself and about my life and about what I could do. And I realized that I'd always learned and been taught that I couldn't focus, I couldn't concentrate. You know, I was a kid in the back of the classroom, could focus. And I could never be good at books. Like I was, I wouldn't read books, let alone ever write one. So Mm -hmm. those were two really big limiting beliefs I had about my life. So I was like, you know what? Let's see how hard I can crush those. So I decided to write a book about focus, basically, and and mindset and lifestyle uh, within 30 days so that I had to really challenge everything that I knew about it, but also apply everything that I was writing about in that moment. And I did that. And the book came out about two years ago in Dutch. And ever since then, it's been an amazing adventure. In the meantime, you know, we had a baby. My my wife quit her job. We've built this lifestyle where we're traveling around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, We're teaching people these principles of lifestyle enhancement, of health and happiness through practice. And right now, it's it's very exciting. There's amazing things coming. Um, One of them that I've been really looking forward to is this podcast. I know how big your reach is and how well you reach people and how much your listeners love the show so it's an honor to be here oh thanks man i really truly appreciate that 
your story is amazing, and I, I want to talk about your childhood. Our childhood is such a defining thing for us, and it really kind of characterizes who we become, you know, like uh, what we become. So, you know, what was something in your childhood that affected you deeply? I think that's a great, great question because everybody has an origin story that has formed them the way they are. And for some people, it's, for example, losing a loved one. Or for some people, it is uh, coming through basically any kind of hardship or being in negative social surroundings or, you know, addiction, depression, whatever it may be. And those are deep depth in life. But then if you work through them, they can become your biggest strength. That's why I love this topic in particular. So one of the bigger challenges I had, it was kind of a combination of everything I just mentioned, but it, it all started with not being able to connect in my direct social surroundings. And I was, you know, the weird, quirky, fat kid in the back of the classroom. I couldn't really get along with the subject matter in school, with the people around me. I was being bullied. Uh, and then I had my own little world inside my own head <laughs> that I was really into and certain creative modes that I couldn't express theirs. I didn't feel a, f a freedom of expression in that time. So this was between, I was about between seven and 10. Hmm. I had a hard time with people judging me and people bullying me, but the most difficult part was the way that I bullied myself, basically, hmm. based hmm. on other people's opinions and this whole concept of, I feel that I am this way and I feel that I'm supposed to express myself this way, but in no way is it being accepted or applauded in my direct surroundings. And it was, it was tough times. My mother remembers me telling her when I was a kid that I didn't want to go on with life. And I can't, I can't remember being suicidal, but I can remember this feeling of how am I supposed to deal with this life? This is a very difficult thing, <laughs> this thing right. called life. Yeah. And what's interesting is that a lot of people who are supposed to be role models uh, like teachers, for example, they pretend to have life figured out and mm. they play this game of, look, I know how life is. And as long as you listen to me and, you know, do what I do, then you'll also maybe finally be good enough to know how life works. Right. And I very quickly caught on to the fact that that's a scam, right? It's, it's one of the biggest lies told in modern society is that, you know, people tell you, follow along these lines, just do what I do. I've got my stuff figured out. And then maybe one day you'll be good enough to be part of the whole thing and to really play the game. And as soon as I started to realize that that basic authority that life is built on, it, it all started to crumble. So that's definitely one of these origin stories. Actually, this is really interesting about stories, by the way. What I love about the modern world is that storytelling has become the best commodity in the world. So mm. the fact that hundreds of thousands of people are tuning into podcasts like these, or millions of people, I should say, is because people are standing up and, and telling their stories. Yes. And I think that stories are like the fundamental technology of humankind to really evolve and connect and to understand each other. It's like the currency of, you know, transaction, energetic transaction. But I want to go back to something that you said that really impacted me. And Something you said about, you know, the real opponent was yourself, paraphrasing your words a little bit, but the perception that you had of yourself was determined based on this outside view of what other people said to you. But the real hurdle was just you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and there have been a few periods in my life where I was really in deep depressions and had struggled with addiction and feeling burnt out and all of that. And the biggest problem is that we sometimes don't see how everything in our life is our own responsibility. And the way in which we think in each moment and act in each moment determines our results in life, right? So some things aren't your fault. There's kids being put through horrible things and there's people who just get caught by disease or by hardship. It's not your fault, but there's a big difference between fault and responsibility. And I feel that being able to see the fact that everything in your life is your own responsibility, even if it's not your fault, that gives a lot of freedom. Mm. So for me, one of the biggest things that I had to take responsibility for was the fact that I was judging myself based on what other people told me. So other people's truths only become your truth if you accept them yes. and if you live them. And this is the big pitfall of the human mind in a way. One of the big pitfalls is that we overestimate other people's valuation of who we are and we underestimate our ability to change that valuation and to nice. change 
the way we look at ourselves. It's a beautiful way to paraphrase it because my own opponent was me. It was my, you know, destructive thoughts, my destructive behavior, my obsessive behavior around, you know, substances and around anything that I could use to get me out of present reality. So the first thing that people do when they when they're their own worst critic is that they try to shape and change and escape from reality instead of facing how powerful and how amazing they really are. I still have these moments of doubt and these moments of worry. And I can tell you, like, writing a book and having my way of thinking out there in print on thousands of bookshelves in the world where people can just see whatever I think about life, that has really magnified the, the fear of, you know, people judging me, which is basically judging myself, you know. Um, but the one thing that remains unshakable is whenever I have a moment of clarity, I realize what I'm really here to do. I realize where I came from, who I really am and yeah. what the most important thing is for me. And that is to share these stories and to put them out there so that people can be helped by it. Your mission, right? It's, it's, it's really ingrained in your DNA. It's something that, you know, you live for. And this was a big transition for you. So you became a teacher. and there was a point within the educational system where you were sort of disillusioned by the system. You did a sort of 180 and I mean, you wanted to teach and that was your main draw. You, and you were teaching middle school? Yeah, so grade 9 through 11, yes. I think. It's, you okay. know, it's different school systems, but that's about the, um, that okay. age range. Okay, so high schoolish, and High schoolish, yeah. So how, how long did you do that? I did that for about nine years, which is really interesting. It's the only job I've ever had. I've never had even like the smallest little side job anywhere. I literally walked into a school reluctant to be a teacher, actually. I didn't want to be a teacher. And, you know, nine years later, I, I left with this new career path in mind, or at least with this new book in hand to try to give what I've learned in nine years in the education system as a science teacher working with kids to give that to a bigger audience. I see some parallels starting to form, you know, with what you're teaching, and and I think it's a good moment to bring up MindLift, you know. So you call this mental fitness for the modern world, and I I love this challenge that you gave yourself to write a book in 30 days. I mean, who does that, right? So going back to just your life as a teacher, what happened? Was there a moment that you remember where you just you had enough? You wanted to make that turn into writing I mean, was there a single event that did this well it was one of those where it's a culmination of all these different events and there was one moment where it really popped out but the I'll, I'll give a little bit of backstory before the moment because like i said i was 19 years old i walked into a school and because i had such a hard time in school i couldn't go straight to study uh, university because i wanted to be a scientist and i wanted to study biology at the university but I was, you know, I, I, I didn't have a very successful school career myself in high school. So I had to do like an internship in the field of biology. And the only thing available was basically a teaching internship. But I didn't want to be a teacher because in my mind, those were the bad guys. Mm -hmm. I always felt like the teachers were the ultimate bullies because they were the ones allowing the bullying. And they were the ones not allowing me to learn in my own way. So I had a lot of resentment for it. Mm -hmm. And I walked into the school, this guy who was supposed to be like my mentor in that period, he greeted me and I basically said to him like, you know, I'll do some copying, I'll get some coffee, I'll do some chores, but don't let me do any teaching, that's not for me, right? And then he was like, I think you might be a teacher actually. And before I could actually say no, he just opened a door and we were standing right next to a classroom. He kind of shoved me in and he says, go and teach. And I was like, what's <laughs> this guy doing, right? And he gives me this physics worksheet, which at the time was actually my worst subject. I've worked as a science teacher, but my main thing was biology. Physics was not my strongest side. Right. And I don't know what happened, but I walked in and I started talking and these kids started laughing. I kind of went for the flow. And, and an hour later, he walked back in and the kids were smiling. I was having fun. I felt amazing and like charged and in flow. And he looked at me and he was like, see, I told you you're a teacher. <laughs> and I was like, man, what happened there? And. Interestingly, then they even offered me a job. I was 19. I didn't even finish my education, but they needed a science teacher. They saw something in me and they hired me. And I was like, you know, if they're not going to take 
this seriously because I was like, if they hired me, some 19-year-old kid off the street doesn't even want to be a teacher. <laughs> they don't take it seriously. I'm not going to take it seriously. So I literally started just experimenting and I started trying stuff. I just walked into the classroom and I was like, let's see how far we can take this and how much fun I can have before they kick me out, right? So I walk into a classroom and I go, hey guys, so what do you want to learn today? And they go, why are you asking us? And I just went, well, because I'm interested. So what do you want to learn and how shall we learn it? And that was the main way of teaching that I used. And it was an amazing ride. And interestingly, if you don't take yourself seriously, but you do take the work seriously, then suddenly you can think innovatively, which yeah. was, I didn't even try to innovate, but it was like, they started giving me all these opportunities to do like innovation projects and to teach other teachers the way that I was successfully teaching these kids. Right. And if there were classes with kids that were all messed up and all over the place, they would send me in and I would kind of like set them straight. At least that was what they thought I was doing. Like I would go in and be drill sergeant, but I was really just going in and being nice to them and asking questions. So yeah. I was kind of on intuition doing things that work, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And then at one point, so this is the, <laughs> the answer to the question. At one point, there was a conference in London. It was called Learning Without Frontiers. Okay. And they were going to bring together like a thousand minds in education innovation uh, to discuss different topics. And one of the guys there was Sir Ken Robinson, who has the best watched TED Talk ever, which is called uh, Do Schools Kill Creativity? Mm. And Two things happened at the same time. So I went to London for the conference, and instead of me being this weird guy just going off the cuff, having success in the school system, but not really knowing what I did, and also I had this frustration with the system because why do these kids enjoy it so much when they're in my class, but then in the next class they have a really hard time, right? So why does the system work in a way that where they're not empowered? So I went there with that mindset, and actually I was on my own in London. I opened up Facebook, and this guy added me who was a good friend 14 15 years ago when i was doing drugs and hanging out in the street as a kid basically and he invites me over to his hotel and it's like the fanciest hotel in the city and i'm like what's this guy been doing right mm. and it turns out he's been massively successful his name is mark by the way he wrote a book about the whole story it's, it's a fun thing that we're now both authors and he was like yeah man you can just you can just do this you know and i was like what are you talking about and he was like you can go into business and you can be successful and you can make money and have the lifestyle you want you could do that and i was like what i'd never even considered it so two mm. things came together my frustration for the education system but also being at this conference where all these great minds were that were saying the things that I've been thinking and feeling the whole time. And I was like, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe right. I really get this, but I'm just one of the few people. And now I'm finally meeting my peers. So that was an <laughs> yeah. interesting perspective. And then I meet this guy who I used to hang out with, who was basically a drug addict and a criminal. And now he's the super wealthy, successful internet marketing guy. And yeah. so in that weekend, those two things came together. And I was like, you know what? I should stop pretending like I'm not taking this seriously. I should step my game up and really create a very clear vision and a mission to build something bigger than me just messing around in a classroom. So that was a really p a pivotal moment. Yeah, that is such a profound story. I love, love that. It's almost, you know, it reminds me of uh, Joseph Campbell's hero journey. It's almost as if you were at that moment sort of presented this breakthrough, but then also this challenge to, you know, how are you going to accomplish this? How are you going to create this new life for yourself? And how are you going to do all of these different things? And one of the things that you did was you wrote Mind Lift. I really want to get into that. I mean, each chapter has something different in it. Is there something about Mind Lift that you find yourself talking about? Or is there anything that you think, you know, people would want to hear about something that you have noticed in other people, if that makes sense? Well, that, yeah, that's, that's a really cool question. That's probably the most original question that I've gotten in 18 podcast interviews in the last two years. So that's awesome. Welcome to HXP. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, great job. So one thing that I find very interesting is that people are they are in a way passionate about changing uh, their life and they want to change their results and they always want to have the most practical insight. So what can I do now? And they always ask me like, what's your best protocol? And I go, well, I eat some of that or maybe I do this meditation thing or that breathing thing. Okay, okay so how long and how often and what time of day? And 
And I want to say something like, I don't know, it's your mind and your life, you have to figure it out, but that doesn't work, right? And I'm a teacher, so I want to give them something they can use. Right. So I make like little protocols that people can instantly use. And, and what I found interesting is that I really tried my best to explain the systems. Uh, and I always say the systems behind the symptoms, so the mechanisms that produce the results. And I found that people are much more interested in learning the quick fix techniques. People who read my book, because my book has like 50 things that you can implement right away that are simple. You don't need to understand how they work. You can just do them. But then when I speak and I start to explain science, I notice that people at first are kind of like, hold on, now here's all these kind of like graphs and, and you know, uh, physiological systems and scientific studies, and they assume that it's too difficult for them. Mm. And that's what I find really interesting. So they, even though if they've already felt the results of the, the practice, for example, I tell people, you know, go take cold showers every day or go do this meditation technique every day. And they've already felt the results uh, and still they're kind of reluctant to get into this scientific mindset. And then my background is in teaching basically 11 to 15 year olds that don't want to learn science, right? So my toolkit is based on that. And if I approach it in that way and make it fun and interesting, then suddenly they really open up to it. And what I've learned from that is that not just kids in school have a hard time learning because they feel disempowered, but those kids have now grown mm -hmm. up and they still, as soon as somebody starts speaking abstract or scientific terms, they get into that disempowered mindset of, learning something that they find difficult, right? And But then when I break it down, they go, that's amazing, right? Do more of that because we have these mental and physical states that we find ourselves in. And my work is really about the question, how do you influence those? And there's two ways to look at it. You have these very practical things that you can implement right away that I give people a lot. But if you also understand the underlying mechanisms of how and why they work, then you can start to view life in a completely different way. And looking back on it, I see that people have a very high interest for learning it, but they don't know it yet. Most people that I meet, they go like, oh, that's very interesting. Does it work? Yes. Okay, fine. Right. So the view that I'm trying to teach people is your human being is a set of very complicated, interrelated, biological, physiological, chemical systems. Mm. And these systems, they produce an output. And these outputs are what we call the results in our life. Now, these results a lot of times feel to people as though they are happening to them, right? Especially if you don't feel like you're in full responsibility of your life. Like, oh, now I'm angry. Now I'm sad. Or, now my health is bad. Or now this happened, right? Mm -hmm. They feel like they're at effect to those things. Now, as soon as I start to teach people and I, and I try to teach people to look at these physiological systems and ask, okay, so there's a system and there's an output that we call a result. What is the input? Where did it yes, come from? Yes. How did it shape? How does it influence these specific systems that I have? What is my personal physiology? What is my mental toolkit? How right. do these things produce the states that I'm in every day? And I feel that that's the answer to your question that I'm giving now might also become my next book. <laughs> so I've been, I, I've been really thinking about this thing. So uh, I hope I'm making a clear statement because this question is so original that I don't have any pre-framed um, answers. <laughs> well, we want to take you out of your pre-framed answers, man. I love that perspective. And I also find it to be very true, very accurate. It's as if when you're at a seminar or when you're at a conference or when you're at somewhere where learning is induced and you're seeing these people speak or when people are coming to see you speak, they're in a state where they're ready to sort of absorb what you have to say. But then when they go home, it's a little bit more difficult to apply it. You have to really want it, right? You yeah. really have to want it for yourself. And in that moment, when you're giving a person this technique, if they believe that they can't do that technique or if they have this preset belief that they will fail at that technique that's exactly what will happen oh absolutely and yeah. this has been measured physiologically with athletes and your belief and what's in your mind before you attempt an action is what determines the outcome so if you think you can do something probability you will be more likely to do that thing than if you don't oh absolutely and that's what I love about understanding. I love, love, love about understanding the human physiology and psychology. Because here's the thing. I, basically, I work in the human potential field, 
right? And so do you. Um, but to really understand the full magnitude of human potential, you have to also really understand and embrace the fundamental flaws of human psychology. One of them is beliefs, belief systems, right? And you see it in the placebo effect and you see it in the example you just gave and it's been studied in so many different ways that the way that you focus your mind, the way that you focus your intentions really determines the quality of your life. Mm. This is such an interesting thing because it works both ways, exactly like you just said it. It's such a perfect example where if you believe you are or you can do or be something, you can do it, right? It's that simple, but it's just as simple the other way around. And we all have in our life built up this mental and emotional database, almost like a set of bookmarks that tell us how we feel and what we believe about the things that we encounter in our lives, right? So what's interesting about that, and this is why I said also understanding the fundamental flaws, we pick up those systems in relation to our direct environment and in relation to direct situations in our life. Most of them, which is why I love how you started the podcast about asking about childhood, because most of these systems are picked up in childhood. Mm, yes. So you find a child finds itself in a situation that is unbearable, that is difficult, where the world doesn't make any sense. Then it tries to find a solution. You know, for example, children who are in a bad breakup between their parents or children who have a situation of abuse or who have a parent that needs a large amount of care. Let's say, you know, a parent gets sick, a parent leaves or uh, something bad happens. They lose their own health or whatever. And then the mind needs to figure out how do I survive this? And what's important to understand is that in terms of priority, our psyche is built first to survive. And it doesn't ask how can I in this situation, but how do I survive this situation? Which makes perfect sense because let's say you're, you know, in an actual survival situation, you're attacked by a bear. You're not asking yourself, how can I thrive in this, <laughs> in this bear attack? Right? Yeah. You're asking, how can I survive the bear attack? So something horrible happens and then it goes, how do I survive this? And you figure something out. And for example, what a lot of people do that I work with, they sacrifice themselves. They start taking care of the parent too much or mm -hmm. they start, you know, sacrificing their own well-being for the sake of having harmony in, in you know, they're, they're comforting the mother if the, if the father is aggressive or whatever. The martyr, the martyr complex. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And this is just one example, but there's a lot of them. And then what's interesting is that even though that system works in that specific situation, in that environment, in that time, if it doesn't have a reason to change, it'll stay there. Right. So if you believe I need to sacrifice myself in order to have the world work, you will keep believing that until you actively disprove it. So mm. people walk into these seminars with these belief systems that are old and outdated and a lot of times no longer serving them. And that forms behavioral patterns. So guess what happens if you feel you need to make the world work by sacrificing yourself? These people, they seek out relationships that require their sacrifice. Mm. These people, they seek out jobs that require their sacrifice and they end up getting in this loop and, you know, finding themselves in the same place of burnout every time or depression or whatever every time, right? So what's really interesting is that these belief systems, they're wiring, literally hardwiring, neural patterns in the brain. And there are so many ways to work with this. But the first step is awareness. And the first step is to understand how the experience of life, which is you know, one of my favorite in, ways to call life is the human experience, right? It's this, this thing that we're all in, that we're all kind of like trying to figure out and go through. I think the first step in improving the subjective experience of life as a human is by creating the awareness to really look honestly deep inside and go, okay, so let's really honestly take a look at these belief systems that we have and really, really, really question if they're still serving us. Because my belief system Years ago, before I started this, was I can't focus, I can't get my mind right, I can't write a book. If I would have kept believing that, I wouldn't be here right now. And if it would have been about me, right, if it's about yourself, it's more difficult to change something. But I made it bigger than myself, and I still do, because I, I have days that I wake up and I, I feel this depressed mode, I have these dark thoughts, but then I go, hold on, right? 
two, three years ago, I challenged these beliefs about myself. Now, my book has become a bestseller. Thousands of people have read it. And on a weekly basis, I get multiple emails of people saying, hey, listen, I was suffering in my life. I had a hard time. Now I used your work and I live a better life for it. So that's another thing that's really important to me is having the perspective of this thing is bigger than me. And I can sit on the couch and be depressed and addicted and overweight and in migraines and like I used to be, or I can realize that I need to discard those limiting beliefs about myself, step up, show the world who I am, and give something good to others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so empowering. And you're not doing it in the sense of, oh, hey, let me fish for you and you know hand you your dinner. It's more of a you know, here's the fishing pole, here's how you find the water, like, go, go do it. You're very much handing people their own responsibility. And I think that's so much different than you mentioned it earlier, the the sort of snake oil that gets sold. And I don't want to drop any names in this podcast, but they exist. And it's pretty disgusting the way that happens. But getting back to just mind lift and some of the key elements of this, for you, when you were writing the book through this 30-day period, was there a point where this eureka moment where you were like, yes, okay, that has to go in the book? And what were you doing when you were in those eureka moments? How are you getting to those states? Let's talk about really accessing that, that state. Uh, that's a great question because um, the main goal of the 30 days was to really figure out whether I could bring myself into that state. So it's, it's very much about state management and the whole idea of this state that you want to achieve, does it happen to you or do you do it? And my statement is you do it. So how do you do it? First of all, you need to understand what strengths and the pitfalls of your own brain are. So for example, for me, I have a really hard time keeping time and I have a really hard time focusing on one thing for a longer period of time, right? So what I learned about myself is that I can access these flow states and really get into it. But as soon as I have them, I try to grasp them and hold on to them, but I can't. And then I kind of lose the flow because your mind is like a muscle, right? And if you focus on something and your muscle can't endure that focus, the mental muscle, it has to let go at some point. So what I learned, for example, is that if I take my work and I kind of chop it up into little 20 minutes sprints of really focused and intense work and then take a little five minute break then i can access that flow state much easier but it's also very important to do the right things in those five minutes and to put myself in the right space so there's a few things that happen i cleaned out my attic right and i made this space to write this desk which was my focus temple i was like this is the the most important thing and what I had in mind is I'm going to do all of the things that I wasn't allowed to do when I was a kid in the classroom. I kind of reverse engineered the hyperactive, hypercreative, curious learner that I was in school but couldn't be and now go, let's just let that little kid run free. And what does he need? Well, he needs a bit of structure. So I'm not going to sit here at my desk and work for eight hours. Wouldn't make any sense. That's not what I want to do. So I set up the whole space. I put like a pull-up bar in the office. I had this giant whiteboard. I had a desk for sitting. I had a standing desk and a bicycle desk. Mm. And I had all these different places to work mm. because I had learned from working in education with kids with my type of brain that a lot of kids that we call ADD or ADHD, they can focus just fine if you have them switch spaces and places and postures every 15 minutes, mm. right? So an ADHD kid is either going to wiggle around and be annoying after 15 minutes or you allow him to stand up and wiggle around and then he can focus perfectly. So that's something I'd learned. So I'd set up this space. That was the first thing. And the only distractions that were there were positive distractions. So instead of saying I can't have any distractions, I figured, you know, life is about balance. It's yin and yang, right? So if I want to be able to focus, I have to embrace the distraction, but at least I'll give myself distractions that are useful. So for example, I would have my musical instruments and I play six or seven musical instruments. So I'd have my piano, I'd have my bass guitar, my flute, I'd have a drum, like in corners of the room. Hmm. So if I would lose focus and get distracted, I'd get distracted by playing a bit of piano. Hmm. Well, instead of 
checking my Facebook or instead of whatever kind of distraction is there, like doing notifications or answering emails, which only deplete your brain. If you go and sit down at a piano for five minutes and you use your finger, you have fine motor skills, your brain connects to the musical notes, it starts to patternize, it starts to sync up the different brain hemispheres. You're actually recharging your brain by getting distracted. So all of these little things I noticed. So I would do a 20-minute uh, block. So I, I almost had like a mental training schedule. I had intervals and rests and, you know, all that stuff. So I would do a 20-minute block of hyper-focused work at my sitting desk. The timer would ring. I would do, for example, pull-ups for five minutes, get my blood flowing. Then I would do the next block, 20 minutes at my standing desk, right? And I would have my music on and kind of like dance around and move a little bit. Um, then when the timer would go, I would have my planned distraction of playing piano. Mm -hmm. Then another focus block at my uh, bicycle desk. And then another little distracted break time where I would do some juggling. So you're, <laughs> again, coordinating, coordinating your hemispheres and having your motor skills, Love right? It. Because I understood the workings of my brain, and especially, and this goes for everybody, but especially for active creative brains, which we like to call ADHD, which is kind of, I have my opinions about it, but anyway. The motor cortex activates the, the, the neocortex, right? So the moving brain activates the thinking brain. So from that understanding, I realized the brain needs fresh and interesting and a little bit challenging input in order to keep thinking and to keep thinking clearly. Mm. So if I would align all of those factors, I would be able to access these flow states of creative writing work and actually pretty accurately determine when I would have a eureka moment. This is one of the problems that geniuses have. Right now I do coaching, for example, like famous singers and uh, artists and people that are actually geniuses. If you have too many eureka moments, mm. that can actually be kind of like a burnout mm. moment. <laughs> you don't want to have a thousand of them. So I was able to pace myself, able to really determine how to work on this thing. And whenever I wouldn't use those systems, I would just be bashed by stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Like if I would just sit down behind my desk and just type for two hours, I would get stuck and like completely get into stress mode and, and self-doubt and all of it. Let's talk about that a little bit more. So anxiety, I mean, we all deal with this and I've been doing this show for a long time now, man. And we've talked to a lot of different types of people and we've covered stress and anxiety and like you said earlier, you know, it's, it's the human experience and I, I'm a human being and, and I'm here experiencing and I have my moments, you know, I, I go into stress, I go into worry. When you see people going into these states, what is your technique to interrupt those moments? Or is this where your cold showers come in or? Yeah, yeah. I, I like Tony Robbins and NLP people. I use that as an excuse to swear, I have to say, profusely. So I throw out a lot of bad words. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> It's that, that definitely works. So there's two things. One of them is interrupting it in the moment, which is what you ask about. And the other one is training the specific stress response, which is what the cold shower, for example, is about. So those are two different things that are both equally important. So in the moment, the most practical, most direct thing I can do is posture and breath. So if your mind is out of control and it's racing all over the place, People don't realize that they are creating physiological circumstances under which this stress can thrive. Mm. So stress is a series of very clear, very well-known physiological circumstances and responses. You know, there's some chemistry involved. You've got your cortisol and your adrenaline. You've got your amygdala, who's the fear center that is gathering the input, determining how to respond to it. And if there's this mental bookmark that it's scary or stressful or whatever, it responds with stress. And also, the more burnt out you are, the more tired you are, the more likely you are to have stress. But also, the more relatively acidic your blood is, the more likely you are to have stress and anxiety. Now, what's interesting is if you are stressed and anxious or panicking, you find yourself hyperventilating. So people who are in a stressful mode, their body produces cortisol, it raises the blood sugar, it raises the heart rate. With an increased heart rate, you need more oxygen, you start to breathe faster. So this also means that breathing faster, and it's not just faster, it's also through your mouth and into your chest. So fast breathing into your mouth and to your chest, those sustain the stressful and anxiety mode because they are a result of it. But this also works the other way around. 
And this is so incredibly simple and so incredibly profound. If you understand that you find yourself in a state and then a state of mind and body, and then there is a state of breathing that comes along with it. We all know that. Like you're tired and you're yawn, yeah, right? Yeah. You're, you're relieved. You take a sigh of relief. You're panicked. You're hyperventilating. Guess what? Works the other way around just as effectively. So if you hyperventilate, guaranteed your body will produce stress and cortisol and adrenaline. This is actually one of the things the Wim Hof Method is built on, to actively produce this stress in order to cope with it better. And you've had Wim Hof on the show, right? So, so a lot of people know about this right now, but that's one of the things that this is built on. So if somebody is in a stressful state, if I can get them to, con- to look me in the eye and I can tell them, breathe like I'm breathing right now, and I just show them a very calm nose breathing, Breathe in through your nose for four seconds, hold it for four seconds, very calmly breathe out, you know, hold it out for four seconds, those kinds of little techniques. If you don't give um, the body more oxygen and uh, if you stop breathing out extra CO2, it will stop producing stress because it doesn't have the energy to produce stress. So that's one thing. Well, let's do it right now. Let's have everyone listening. And why don't you guide us through that, Casper? And if you don't mind, and just absolutely, why don't you show us this breathing technique, and I'll do the breathing, and you can sort of direct me into, you know, how to move out of an anxiety state, and we can show these people. Absolutely. So there's, I think, 23 different techniques to go from anxiety to calm. I think the most effective and most well known is called box breathing. This is actually used a lot by the Navy SEALs to switch between a heavy sprint and then being able to downregulate, calm down the heart rate for them to be able to actually aim their rifle. So this is a very practical mm. thing. Now, if anybody's listening and you're in a car or you're in any place where it's not safe to kind of feel dizzy, don't do this, right? Mm. So it's, it's yes. important to kind of sit down. And even if you're in an anxious state and I do this with people, I tell them to sit down, you know, calm down. Or even lay down if people get, um, uh, you know, dizzy easily, or if people easily snap into hyperventilation, they want to make sure they're safe. So, so just that's just a quick precaution for people. I I listen to podcasts driving all the time, and I don't want anybody getting yeah. dizzy behind the steering. Massive with- disclaimer: Don't do this if you're driving. Make sure that you're at home on your couch <laughs> in your living room in the safety of your own home while you do this. Take it away. <laughs> exactly. So, here's box breathing, and it's called box breathing because it has equal parts. So first, sit down and sit back into your chair, lean back, relax, let your shoulders hang back. Okay. Because stress really goes into shoulders also, right? And just watch how changing your posture can already calm down your mind and maybe even your body. Yeah. Then next is, just a little invitation. You might be able to do this. Some people can do it right away, but just kind of ask the internal question in your body of what's my heart rate doing? And without saying what it's doing or giving it a name, just gently observe where your heart is. Maybe you feel it around your chest or in your wrist or uh, in your neck, anywhere else. Just see if you can locate it anywhere and see if it's maybe it's rhythmical Maybe it's fast, maybe it's slow. It doesn't really matter where it is. Try not to judge it. Then the next is, how are you breathing? So what's the state of your breath right now? Are you breathing through your mouth or through your nose? Right? And this is something people can check for themselves also at home. Are you breathing fast relatively or slow? Mm. And if you don't know what fast or slow is, are you breathing at a pace that is more like you are just waking up in bed, so very calm and relaxed, or is it more as though you've just run up a few steps? So is it relatively fast? So now, wherever you are, what we're gonna do is we're gonna try to downregulate the nervous system. So get out of the active mode. And this is a very simple technique where you breathe in for four counts, you hold it in for four counts, you breathe out for four counts, and you hold it out for four counts. This is one of the easiest ways to start with breath work and to downregulate yourself. So we're going to start with a, with a deep sigh of relief. One, yeah? one more time. You, you breathe in for a four count, breathe out for a four count, and then breathe back in for a four count? No, I'll, I'll walk okay, you through okay, it. It's it. in, hold, out, hold. Okay. And what we're going to do is start with a deep sigh of relief so that we start on an out breath. So breathe all the way in. Let it go. 
and now breathe in two three four hold it in two three four breathe out two three four and hold it out two three four breathe in two three four hold it in two three four breathe out Hold it out. Two, three, four. Breathe in. Two, three, four. Hold it in. Two, three, four. Breathe out. Two, four. Hold it out. Two, three, four. All right. Take a deep sigh of relief again. Let it go. Wow. That's really impressive, man. I, uh, I feel like this sort of weight is off my shoulders. I feel lighter. I feel renewed, refreshed. And it's so simple. It's just such a simple little exercise. I feel much more calm. Is that the whole exercise? That's the whole thing, man. <laughs> and we just did three rounds. And normally I do four rounds, which equates to one minute, basically. Just about one minute. And this is what I do every night before I go to sleep, just to make sure that the last little pinches of stress and anxiety are out of my nervous system so there's so much going on there just controlling the breath gives you more control over your physiology then doing the breath holds sends the signal internally of there might not be enough oxygen to sustain activity so you're calming down and as you calmly and controlly breathe out and hold it out you're actually stimulating the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve is the most important actor in the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the nervous system we call rest and digest. So the opposite of fight and flight. So as you are stimulating that nerve, it is actually sending signals to the organs to get out of anxiety mode. And even if you practice very intently and focused to get out of inflammation mode, it lowers the heart rate. It actually decreases activity in the right prefrontal lobe, which is the place where we can show anxiety or stress or depression in the brain they come together in this very simple practice and you only need like a minute of it if it doesn't in a situation you do it for a minute it doesn't change anything that's a sure sign you need to get out of the situation instead of <laughs> change your breathing right so um yeah this is one of my favorite little quick tools to give people it's beautiful i love it man and i'm sure many many people will benefit from that little exercise that we just did I want to talk about your relation to success. I dislike the word success, and there are so many in different interpretations of success. There is you know, society's interpretation of success, and there is this sort of idea that when you see someone, what people usually see is that person has you know, sort of blown up to a point where everybody knows who they are, and suddenly they're successful. But in the backstory, there is an everyday grind that you put in and work and it's hard work. I want to know what your perception and your idea of success is. Beautiful, beautiful question. Um, so my personal definition of success is a continuous practice of finding balance between the important factors of life, being mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, and financial. And also relationship is one of the, mm. one of the things. Mm -hmm. So financial is one of them, right? And I think that this is an important thing where a lot of people, if you ask about success, they start throwing out definitions about money. And I meet a lot of people who are financially successful, but they are spiritually or emotionally clogged up or out of balance, right? For me, and that's why I call it a continuous practice, because what's in there is in the definition, it is built the idea that this is an effort, a constant effort and a conscious effort that uh, you do every day. And also the word practice implies skill and skill implies development and putting in the effort to practice. So for me, success is about the balance between those things. I am not interested in financial success if I have to sacrifice my relationships with family or my physical health or my mental or emotional health. And also, I'm not willing to put my physical success in front of financial success or emotional success. I, I was a pretty good basketball player when I was a kid. Mm. I trained a lot, right? And 
I was the fat kid in school. So I, and I couldn't get along and I didn't have any friends. And the one kid that I liked went to basketball. So I was like, shit, I better go there and show up <laughs> and be good at it. <laughs> and these other kids, they could get away with three hours of practice in the week and they would all beat me on the court. So I was like, man, the only thing I can do is put in more effort and practice and work harder. And I worked hard and hard and hard. And within like uh, a year or something, nobody on the court could even touch me, right? Because I put in so much more work right. because I didn't have any talent. Now, another thing that happened there is I had my growth spurt. I was just a kid and I was so obsessed about this physical work, about being the best basketball player on the court that it completely messed up all the other parts. I didn't have any time for anything else, right? I didn't reflect well on my friendships and all these other factors. So on different parts of my life, I've been out of balance and I know a lot of people are out of balance and they say I'm successful and, and then I go, at what, right? So I think it's important to have a personal statement of success and then to really take that success very seriously because I feel that nobody is helped by me being unsuccessful and everybody is helped by everybody being successful. This is one of the fundamental beliefs that I have about the work that I'm doing and the way that I'm approaching the world is I want everybody to win because my definition of, of my success doesn't mean that anybody else has to fail. So I can win, but it doesn't mean somebody else has to lose. Mm. So yeah, mm. that's my I two cents on it. I love that. I love that. That rings true for me so much. I have a very similar perspective on you know, just the way we've identified with consumerism and competition and this need to win. What we've learned is, you know, there is a winner and there's a loser. I, I really connect with the way that you describe your relationship to your own personal health and, you know, money. You know, I talk to a lot of different entrepreneurs, people who are building their own businesses, and these people are working 12, 14, 16 hour days, like just slaving away for this dream that they're really passionate about. And what you, you will notice is that slowly over time, they degrade because they're not nourishing their body. They're not giving their body this attention that it needs and they crash. Oh yeah. Because not all of those areas can grow the whole time. So obviously the foundation of my definition of success is growth. It is about continuous forward motion, relentless forward motion. I think that's the title of a book about ultra running, uh, but it's, it's kind of like one of these mantras that I have, relentless forward motion, just mm. keep doing the next step. Sometimes I find I have a little growth spurt on the financial level and I go, awesome, that's amazing. Um, and it's really easy to become obsessive about it and go, this is awesome, I should keep doing this and this and this. And then you notice that these other parts are falling back. And I think that's where the exact entrepreneurs you just described, they, they get tunnel vision on this one area and then the other ones start lacking. And, you know, that's one of the pitfalls, but it's also fine. You know, I found myself staring into this tunnel of one of these things going like, oh, now the physical stuff is all over the place, right? And getting stronger and getting healthier and getting fitter and then noticing like, oh man, I, I could have done this in my business. I could have gone for that opportunity. And actually recently I went for a whole ton of opportunities when I was doing this uh, tour through the US. You know, I live in Europe and I'm flying all over the place, like 12 flights in six weeks, 14 seminars, like all this high profile work, mm. working with these amazing people. And then I got home and it's the first time in years that I've gained weight lost muscle mass and feel less strong. And then I go, oh, I did it again. It was awesome. You know, my business grew, my bank account grew, but now it's time to really be honest and say the body, the mind, spirit, they need something extra right now, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's good to kind of juggle them. And, and sometimes one of them goes up and the other one goes down. As long as in this continuous um, forward motion, as long as there's balance overall, I think that's the most important thing. It's equilibrium, it's balance, and really understanding yourself, you know, know thyself, understanding your own limitation, understanding your own body, just listening to your body, because your body will tell you, your intuition will tell you, and it will speak, and most of the time it speaks in whispers. I, I just want to interject really quickly and say that there's, there's a quote in my book that is perfect, what you just said, and the quote is, the body whispers before it screams. Yes. And, and if you can listen to the whispers, you'll save yourself a lot of screams. 
and that's what you're doing in this book. You're really giving people these sort of ways to, you know, hear those whispers before they become screams. You know, you've also created methodologies to deal with those screams because we all eventually end up screaming, you know, like that's, that's part of the human condition. It's yep. part of life. I wanted to ask you about one more thing and then we'll put a bow on this and wrap it up. But I want to know how important is it for our lives to do absolutely nothing? How important is it to not be working on the next project, not be flying around to different speaking engagements, literally not be doing anything? So, you know, it's, it, it, I always come down and this is one of those things where I bump my head against the same wall again and they go up, oh, I should listen to my own advice because it's all yin and yang, right? So if you want to have, and this is interesting because I just said relentless forward motion, but there is no motion without standing still. So, you know, there is no action without rest. And I think silence and emptiness even are very, very important teachers where I think that entrepreneurs, people who build lifestyles and build businesses and put products out, the ones that are successful, the ones that are doing the best jobs are making art in a sense. Yes. They're making something beautiful, something unique, right? You know, and we've met in person, you know, when we're at the kitchen table, we don't sound like this, but as soon as your podcast might go on, you become a poet your tone becomes poetic and your language and you get into this flow and you, your wording becomes like eloquent. And this is something that I find is really important to understand for people who want to build something, put something out into the world is that you are making something that people are going to see or use or consume. And it's a form of art. Art is something that has to kind of like spring from something deep inside. And you have to create circumstances for it to be able to spring and to be able to grow and to be able to flourish. And the creation of these circumstances comes from allowing that source of truth and that source of inspiration and flow to really sometimes have a moment of silence and a moment of rest and a moment of really not having to do the next thing, not having to go anywhere. And my grandfather, he was a genius man i loved him so much and i grew up in all of his stories and every time i would stay at his house and it was kind of like a sleepy town with old people and i would go to him and i would say i'm bored and then he said congratulations <laughs> <laughs> because he said this is the soil of good thought right boredom is the soil of good thought and i believe that that's important sometimes you have to kind of sit around and be in this silence because that's where you hear the whispers. That's where the good idea catches yeah. you. That's where this stroke of genius of insight hits you and you realize that that's something you needed to do the whole time. And I'll, I have one last anecdote that, I, yeah. um, that I'll share. So this is in meditation and mindfulness and Zen, which are all practices that I've put a lot of time in. It's very much about finding the silence, finding the stillness, but even finding like deprivation and suffering. And then within that, finding beauty. So that's kind of like what I was just talking about, to create the silence, the space for the beauty, the art to kind of spring and to flourish. About, I think a year and a half ago, I was running an ultra marathon, which is kind of crazy, right? It's more than a marathon. This was 51K, like 10% more than a marathon in Switzerland, in the mountains. There was 9,000 feet of elevation in total, right? Crazy stuff. I ended up continuously running in the mountains for nine hours. And it was... Uh, equal parts glorious as miserable as ultra endurance <laughs> athletes know. I came to a point where I was, I couldn't move my left leg. I had been running for about seven hours. I tripped twice. I'd hurt my ankle. I was just completely broken. I'd never been so exhausted. I couldn't hold in my food, right? I couldn't, my stomach was upset. I couldn't do another step. Oh my God. And I was staring out into the distance and there was just, emptiness. I felt like I, I didn't have even the, the tiniest amount of energy left in my body. I couldn't appreciate anything. There was just pain, emptiness, exhaustion, right? And interestingly, my mind went completely quiet. My mind always has something to say. And in that moment, it was like, you know what? I give up. I don't have anything to do with this. <laughs> Figure it out. And it was this intense silence. And I was just staring out into the distance. 
not even noticing whatever was going on. It was that silent. This guy came up next to me, a Scotsman, and he looked at me. And then he looked at where I was looking, where I was staring. And then he said something like, oh, man, you're right. Sometimes you have to stop and enjoy the view. (laughs) He thought that I was mindfully stopping to look at the beautiful view because it was like the most beautiful mountain view ever. And I didn't. I wasn't present. And then just because he thought I was doing it, he reminded me that's the goal. That's what the thing is about, right? Taking time to stand still and enjoy the scenery. And I just snapped out of it. And being in a place of that intense like emptiness and silence, and then the first and most profound thought to come up was enjoy this moment. It was the loudest um, confirmation of that idea that I ever had. So, you know, and, and then I just found this new well of energy because I came from the silence. I faced all this difficulty. And, uh, you know, it's luxury and difficulty. I mean, there's people who have actual poverty and actual, mm-hmm. like, You're... I'm a white man born in a Western country. I'm fucking lucky, okay? <laughs> I, have to, I have to pay money to go to a mountain and feel suffering, right? So it's, this is all, I want people to understand, this is all luxury. You know, my life, I've been through some hardships, but statistically, my life is the easiest life in history. <laughs> Come on. But the point is that that moment of silence where there was nothingness for just a minute. And then the first thing that came into my experience so vividly was that moment of enjoy it, make art, make something beautiful. The rest of the trill, which was like probably like 25% was still left, it just became a dance. And I started laughing and I started making jokes with people around me. I stopped taking the whole thing seriously. So that's just a little anecdote of a profound moment in my life where I realized that every now and then you have to seek out the stillness, the emptiness, the not uh, anxiously, obsessively seeking for the next thrill and to really grasp what is in front of you and then watch the inspiration happen. You can issue a mic drop after that little story. Just drop the mic. <laughs> Casper, the, this has been beautiful, man. We touched on so many different things and I feel like we just scratched the surface. There's so much in this book that is genuinely helpful and i highly recommend it the book is called mind lift mental fitness for the modern mind my guest is casper vandermeulen casper i know that you travel around a lot are you doing anything where people can kind of sign up and come see you oh yeah yeah so i'm 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 doing a tour on the east coast and uh colorado so i'm kind of like all over the place but uh, that's october and november i'll be teaching a bunch of workshops around new york uh, boston area um let me think atlanta colorado and a quick trip to la and so that's that's this uh fall and then in the winter january and february i've got a bunch of retreats in poland in probably iceland um, and I'm looking for one more location where I'm doing a full week retreat with breath work and cold exposure and all the biohacking stuff. Uh, so that's that's definitely something worth traveling for in my experience. Awesome. And then in uh, May and June, I'll I'll be around in uh, the uh, West Coast, which is Southern California has become one of my favorite places <laughs> to be. So I'll be touring around San Diego, Los Angeles, uh, around there. So I'm around a lot. Check out my website. And if anybody has learned anything from this, taken away anything, or has a question, you can find my contact info on my website. I will answer your questions, and I will answer every just little note that you sent me, but it might take some time (laughs) because I know how big your listener base is. But I always just want to know, let people know, like, hey, uh, I appreciate hearing back from listeners because that'll make the this you know beautiful medium of podcasting a bit more interactive to me yeah i'm sure i'm sure that you'll you'll get some questions and you know i highly recommend for people to order the book and casper what is your website mindlift.com okay so that's easy mindlift.com and you know i highly recommend people either download the ebook or just order a copy casper are you doing anything where if people go to mindlift that you like sort of autograph the copy or anything like that for the American version, it's difficult because I don't get involved in any of the processing, oh, okay, so it's okay. difficult to sign. Yeah. By the way, there is an audiobook, and I myself enjoy listening to audiobooks 
more than reading, and then you can listen to my smooth voice <laughs> for six hours. Um, so that's definitely a thing. But I would love for people to come follow me on Instagram. You can find my Instagram thing on there uh, on on the website too. Uh, that's where I'm most active, and I love getting you know little notes or pictures from people who are what reading the book. What is your Instagram? Uh, it's at Casper's Focus. K A S P E R F O C U S. Okay, got it. It's my favorite favorite outlet. Cool. Um, yeah, come check me out. We will definitely have people get to the website, the book, and and your Instagram. Casper, thank you so much for being here, man. I'm bowing humbly. You crushed it. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, man. You've got one hell of a beautiful podcast going here, so it's my honor to be here. <laughs> thank you so much, man. Guys, you have been listening to The Human Experience. We are going to get out of here. A huge thanks to my guest, Casper Vandermeulen. Make sure that you pick up a copy of the book, Mind Lift, Mental Fitness for the Modern Mind. And we will catch you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, you've been listening to The Human Experience and you just heard our episode with Casper Vandermeulen. Really great episode and you heard the full episode, but we do have a member section now. And you know, with all the messages that we get on Twitter and all the inspiration that we're giving all these people, we love that. We love the feedback and thank you for that. But if you enjoy what you're hearing and you want us to continue doing this show, has to be sustainable so if you want access to the members content we're going to create a giveaway for that and we're finishing the member site right now but get to the humanxp.com members sign up right now and help support what we're doing thank you guys so much for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode it was a really really fun episode to do with casper